to the Yukon Internal Medicine Podcast. This is Alter Shujin, your host and a chief medical resident at the University of Connecticut. A quick disclaimer before we start, all opinions and views expressed in our podcast are entirely the responsibility of the authors and do not represent the opinions of anyone else in the Yukon Department of Medicine. The content presented is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. With that in mind, I want to welcome you back to our neurology series, where we'll go over neurological conditions frequently encountered in primary care setting and on medical wards, and learn how to diagnose and manage them like a true neurologist. Continuing with where we left off last episode, I'm joined by Dr. Dennison Emerson, a former neurology chief resident at UConn and currently a vascular fellow at Hartford Hospital and UConn. The phrase, time is brain, emphasizes the emergency of the cerebrovascular event and the need to act fast to preserve as much of the healthy brain tissue as possible. While medicine residents rarely manage patients during stroke alerts, they are oftentimes responsible for recognizing the early symptoms of stroke and initiating a stat neurology consult. We want to dedicate this episode to discussion of stroke, its etiologies, diagnostic approaches, and options for prevention and therapy. Without further ado, I'll hand it over to Dennis to teach us all about stroke. Hey, thank you for having me on the podcast, and I'm so glad I get to talk about my favorite subject. Happy to have you here. The adrenaline of a stroke alert is something many residents remember long after they've completed training. It can be stressful realizing the patient is developing signs of a stroke and the need to act as quickly as possible, activating a stroke alert and being the one to call neurology for a stat evaluation and imaging. Let's break down the topic and start by the types of strokes, their etiologies and common presentations. Of course. I think with stroke, you have to jump into a case. And whenever I'm thinking of a case, we'll start with the most exciting, which is the acute stroke alert. And whenever I evaluate a patient for the first time as a acute stroke, I have to answer to myself in those few minutes whether I actually think this is a stroke or not. And the things that help me make that decision are oftentimes the initial laboratory studies and the initial exam that's done by the uh, internal medicine doctor or the ED physician. But up front, what I like to know is obviously what are their vital signs doing? Are they stable? What rhythm are they in? Are they euglycemic? And are there any obvious abnormalities in their medical examination that could explain these symptoms? The example being, if their blood glucose is 10, I'm going to stop and correct that cause because there are many mimics for stroke. What I like to say is, if somebody has an acute neurological change, I would presume it's a stroke until proven otherwise but you should constantly be proving to yourself that you're still dealing with a stroke so that you don't end up down the rabbit hole. And when you see the patient for the first time, the first question you answer for yourself is, are they still having symptoms? And the reason I ask that is because all of the interventions, imaging that I suggest as I go through a stroke code is for purpose, and it's to decide on treatment. The first step, if the patient is no longer having symptoms, your question to me is, well, was it a TIA? And usually what we look for in these situations, and uh, if I suspect that someone is having a TIA, I think to myself, did the patient's symptoms fit a vascular syndrome? So 
could I localize the symptoms that the patient's having to a blood vessel or to a cerebral vascular issue? And if that answer is yes, then I continue to evaluate and consider them as a stroke. We've recently changed our thinking paradigm. As recently as, or as far off as when I was in medical school, I was taught that if the symptoms resolve in 24 hours, the patient's having a TIA, and if it's more than 24 hours, then it's a stroke. We now know that strokes are a tissue injury rather than a function of time. So when I'm deciding on a TIA, I'm trying to see if that patient has had tissue injury or a stroke that just improved. The thing that's going to make that answer for me is an MRI. Well, you're going to say to me, well, Dennis, I don't have an MRI at any given moment in time. And, you know, Allah is completely convinced that this patient is having a stroke. So my question to her is, if this really is a stroke, then uh, what's their ABCD2 score? And that is a grading scale that helps us decide on whether we think this was a high-risk event. And to put it simply, the A is age and over 60. The B is blood pressure, which is greater than 140 or greater than 90. The C is clinical, whether it was purely just speech changes, which you get 1.4, or unilateral weakness, which gives you two points, and duration, which is uh, 10 to 59 minutes or greater than 60 minutes, getting one point and two points respectively. And finally, if the patient has a history of diabetes. If you can think about this logically, all of these things are just strikes against the patient that make this more likely to be a vascular event. And a score of six to seven can give uh, a risk of up to uh, 8.1% within two days of having an additional stroke. So the reason I do this assessment, and I don't base my decisions purely on one score, but use it as a tool to decide if this is a high-risk event, even if their symptoms are better and I'm suspecting a TIA, I think this patient should be treated as a stroke because their risk of having a stroke within the next two days, 30 days, or 90 days is profoundly high. And if we can figure out an etiology, we may be able to intervene. Jumping back in, if I walk into the stroke code and the patient is still having symptoms, then I'm still in play. The first therapy I'm considering for them is TPA. And oftentimes, uh, depending on your institution, the internal medicine doctor may be the one ordering and administering TPA when uh, a neurologist isn't in the house. So it's worthwhile knowing who we consider and when we consider TPA. So just briefly, you know, TPA is a thrombolytic. Uh, you all use it in PE, so I'm sure you're very familiar with it. There are certain nuances to treatment of stroke with TPA. The most significant being that there is a three and four and a half hour window. For the most part, we presume most people in the four and a half hour window, and we screen them out with additional risk factors if they don't fit in there. The question of whether you treat a patient with TPA has been controversial, but there is consensus statement. And according to our guidelines, if a patient is having disabling neurological symptoms and they're within the treatment window, they should be considered for TPA. And the reason I use that wording is a recent trial, I guess not so recent now, but called the PRISMS trial, pushed us in the direction that treating patients who have non-disabling minor strokes may not be beneficial in the long term. So we evaluate and decide 
who is having a disabling stroke before we treat them. That is easier said than done. And it comes back to always getting to know who you're treating. If my patient is a musician who plucks on a guitar all day, finger numbness and weakness is a disabling symptom. And so taking into account their life, we make that decision and it's a shared decision with the patient at that time. An important thing to know is that if somebody comes in in the three hour window and you're unable to consent them for treatment, uh, you can administer TPA as emergency therapy without the upfront consent, but you should always try your best to you know, make sure you and your patient are on the same page when providing such a significant intervention. And the reason it's so important to make sure that people understand the risks is, like any thrombolytic, the risk is bleeding. And if we're assuming that somebody has a stroke, the most significant being a risk of bleeding into the brain. And the numbers we often quote are risks as high as 6%. And that's when I'm counseling a patient about TPA, I quote the, the number of 6%, and that's kind of the, the standard number. Now, as I've walked into a case and I've made sure that, yes, they're having a stroke, they are not having a mimic, and I've evaluated them up front, the boards will say, well, hey, Dennis, what is the only lab you need to, to get before you give TPA? And I can say you'll guarantee this will come up. And that's the glucose, not the INR, which I'm sure a lot of you are screaming at me. Yep. So everybody that I've ever spoken to, the first time they're ever thinking about TPA says INR. And I said the exact same thing when I was first learning about TPA. The reason we check the glucose is because a low glucose can mimic a stroke, and obviously TPA is not gonna help them. The only time you would consider checking the INR is if you have a suspicion for coagulopathy. But there's no upfront need to check the INR before you administer TPA to a patient which you do not suspect a coagulopathy. So that's oftentimes a place where boards and questions like to trick people. But getting back into treating our actual patient, The next step after you've considered someone for TPA is what else can I offer them? And the only additional therapy which we now know is beneficial in the long term is thrombectomy. And thrombectomy is a very complex conversation because in 2013, we finally figured out that thrombectomy in the six hour window is significantly beneficial through our Mr. Clean study. And that's great. Um, You know, you have TPA in four and a half hours, and now we have thrombectomy in six hours. But as you know, most of our patients don't come into the hospital in six hours or four and a half hours. They'll wake up and know that they had stroke symptoms. And my first question when somebody comes in is, when were you last known well? Well, if it was the time you went to sleep, now you're outside of the treatment windows for both therapies. So then, you know, you'll ask me, what can I do? And now we know from more recent trials, Dawn and Diffuse, that we can use perfusion-based imaging to decide and select out for patients uh, who may be eligible for mechanical thrombectomy. And what we're doing in this situation is we're at a clinical branch point. I have a patient who's come in and I've either treated them or I have not treated them with TPA because they're 
within the, the four and a half hour window, then I've decided whether they're in the six hour window. If they're within the six hour window and there's no contraindications to treating them with thrombectomy, then they're a go. But the more complex case comes in is, well, what if they're in that six to 24 hour window where we don't know? And this is when we kind of put our heads together. We have at this point already done a CT scan because I had to get a CT scan to make sure there was no bleeding prior to giving my TPA, whether I gave it or not. The next step in my therapy is I'm going to decide, is the patient I'm looking at having symptoms that would fit a large vessel occlusion, but generally is their NIH greater than six, or is it an LVO syndrome, large vessel occlusion syndrome? And if that's the case, then I get vessel imaging with a CTA at Hartford Hospital and at UConn, we do CTA. There are institutions that do MRA and both are okay to do. We do CTA because that's what's available to us and there's really no guidance on which one's better. We get the CTA and if I identify a large vessel occlusion, which the trials identify as an occlusion of the, the distal ICA, uh, internal carotid artery, or the proximal MCAs, which are amiable to treatment, I'm gonna look at their CAT scan, calculate what's called an aspect score, which is a very complex way of saying, did this patient already have a stroke or not? If I already see the stroke on CAT scan, I am not gonna do them any good by pulling out that blood clot and putting fresh blood into a uh, new wound. But if it looks like their stroke has not completely developed, then I would go to the next step, which is my CT perfusion. And using, and I won't go through the numbers for you, but I look at the proportion of tissue that is what we call the core, which is already infarcted, and what we call the penumbra, which is tissue that is at risk or is ischemic, but has not yet turned into a stroke. And if that ratio is favorable, then we go ahead with mechanical thrombectomy. And it's been a significant game changer for the treatment of stroke because we're now able to offer people a highly efficacious therapy and within a reasonable time window. In America, the treatment model kind of varies because we have patients who will come to our institution for the first time and, you know, we'll do all of this work up up front. Or we also have that shift where we have the spoken model set up where a patient at one of our smaller institutions will have a CT scan and have a clinical history and the ED doc or the internal medicine doc there will call and say, hey, I have a patient with a stroke. I've already actually given TPA, but I think they might be a candidate for thrombectomy. Can I send them to you? And that is another place where, you know, we both fit in and work together and we have that conversation to decide if they're a candidate for treatment. All right. So my understanding is that hemodynamics are important in management of acute stroke and afterwards. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that? Sure. This will probably come up quite a bit, but before we administer TPA, we do need a blood pressure. And the golden number is that they should be less than 185 over 110. And after you administer TPA, it drops down by five points for both. Keeping in mind that in the acute setting, really we're only using IV blood pressure medications, uh, usually labetalol or calcium channel blockers like uh, nicardipine or clavetipine. In addition to hemodynamic monitoring, 
You never forget ABCs because it all comes first. Nobody cares if somebody's having a stroke if they can't breathe or they're not maintaining their airway or they're in circulatory collapse. We want to take care of our patient first. Thank you for going over that. Another important question that comes with discussion of TPA administration is what contraindications are there? And I know it's a lengthy list, so any insight you have or recommendations would be greatly appreciated. So what I don't recommend is you opening up this podcast (laughs) and putting it into yours and listening for a list of the contraindications. Whenever I consider giving TPA, I consider it like a procedure and I do a formal timeout. And no matter how many times I've given TPA, I actually just open up the MedCal app. I don't work for this company or anything. You can pick any app you want, but this one works for me. And I go through the checklist the same way every time. And I think that's the best way to make sure you're giving this dangerous medication in a safe manner and to avoid the dreaded complication of bleeding or um, other contraindications. And you don't want to feel like you're the one who is responsible for worsening someone's stroke when you were trying to help. And understanding your hospital's protocols for reversal of TPA is very important, and it can vary from institution to institution. So knowing that there are set protocols for TPA reversal, uh, more so because there's no specific medication that reverses TPA in and of itself, but understanding that every institution has their own model for doing this is both two important considerations. Before you consent, you should know how to fix the thing that is the complication you're dreading. Perfect. That's a very, very important thing to remember. So, Dennis, you've discussed two approaches to managing ischemic stroke. One was TPA and one was thrombectomy. How does their management afterwards vary? So, that, that's a great question. So, after TPA administration, we have really close neuromonitoring, typically in the uh, high-acuity setting, such as an uh, ED pod where they can be monitored at minimum Q1 hour, but in the immediate post-TPA period, we actually monitor them Q15. And that that model can vary depending on where you're at, but the initial post-TPA parameters are Q15. We'll monitor them in the neuro ICU very closely because we're looking for focal neurological deficits to suggest uh, hemorrhagic transformation. Obviously, you know, we talked about the blood pressure parameters already, but you want to make sure that Number one, you're not administering any medications that can, quote unquote, thin their blood. So you don't want to give chemical VTE prophylaxis in the immediate 24-hour period. You're not giving your aspirin like you would to a, a typical stroke. And you're wanting to be careful on any invasive procedure that you perform. So if you're going to do a puncture at a non-compressible site, think about it before you do it. Is it really necessary right now or can it wait until the uh, immediate post-TPA period? As a um, a metric, the recommendation is to perform imaging at the 24-hour period. That can either be with a CT scan or with the MRI that you are going to perform for the patient's stroke either way. And those are really the most important considerations after TPA. Keep in mind that if you're going to do mechanical thrombectomy, oftentimes these patients are double treated. So you may get a situation where someone gets TPA and then undergoes mechanical thrombectomy, and you really want to keep those TPA parameters in mind. After we do thrombectomy, there are some more 
complex decisions to make and some answers that haven't really been flushed out yet. The main thing is, is the blood pressure goals after mechanical thrombectomy. There's evolving evidence that patients who achieve better recanalization or you're completely able to take out the occlusion may need less permissive hypertension or higher blood pressures than somebody who isn't completely recanalized. And the reason being that we're worried about hemorrhagic transformation. Depending on the interventionalist you get and the, the vascular neurologist you get, you may see people recommend a blood pressure goal of less than 140 systolic. And at times they'll recommend less than 160. The idea being that once we've completely recanalized the blood vessel, it may not need the high blood pressure that we previously recommended. If we look at the Dawn protocol, they did less than 140 for their recanalization rates uh, in what we call TIKI 2B or TIKI 3. And that's just a score of how well the uh, cerebral blood vessels are re reperfusing. TIKI 3 just means all of the blood vessels are filling well. And we use that as a guide to make our decisions later on. Excellent. So now that we've talked about how to acutely manage an ischemic stroke, it would be great to talk a little bit more about preventative strategies and further workup that needs to happen after somebody had a stroke. Sure. So this is actually my favorite part. Just to, to get right off the bat, that first patient that we started with where we thought about the low NIH, low risk, or improving symptoms or TIA, there is strong evidence through recent trials, Chance and Point and also Thales trial, that when you have a low NIH or minor stroke or a high-risk TIA, these patients would benefit from dual antiplatelet therapy. The guidelines recommend between 21 to 90 days of dual antiplatelets, and by that I mean aspirin and Plavix, or if we talk about Thales, aspirin and Berlanta. The reason 21 days comes in is because on the Kaplan-Meier curve for the Chance and Point trials, 21 days is where we really saw that separation of the curve. And they used that data to decide that all of this group of patients would benefit from that therapy. So that is something we always consider as a possible intervention, even if we're not doing TPA or thrombectomy on a patient, that's something that we can still offer somebody. But my favorite part actually is trying to figure out you know, what kind of stroke was this? How did it happen? And how can we prevent it from happening? Typically, our standard stroke workup includes certain areas of evaluation. So we look at the pipes first, and that's the craniocervical vasculature. Typically, in our institution, we like to use CTA imaging due to um, accuracy of it and the ease of uh, obtaining it. Uh, the only downside is obviously you have to give contrast and radiation. What we look at is we look at the, the head and the neck. When we're looking at these studies, we actually go down into the arch. We're evaluating the arch for atheroma. Uh, the buzzword is usually four millimeters or greater is kind of a high-risk atheroma of the arch. Uh, we're looking at the extracranial carotid arteries for atherosclerotic plaque or even intraluminal thrombi that could be sitting there. Uh, we're looking for dissection, which may be a cause of stroke. We're now looking in the intracranial vasculature to see if there's any intracranial atherosclerotic disease or intracranial stenosis that could explain why this patient had a stroke. Next, 
we definitely want to ass uh, assess the patient's brain parenchyma. And the way we do that is with the MRI. It gives us the best high-resolution imaging. And it goes beyond purely evaluating for stroke. When we're looking for strokes, we're looking in a sequence called the diffusion-weighted imaging. Typically, these bright spots in this diffusion imaging suggests a stroke. And when we're looking at these stroke patterns, we're looking at, one, how big are these strokes? Where are they located? And the reason this is important for us is if I see a small lacunar stroke in the basal ganglia, that's going to change my workup and my consideration for this patient versus somebody who has multifocal, small little punctate strokes throughout every hemisphere of their brain. And beyond that, when I'm looking at their MRI, I'm also looking at other sequences such as their flare sequence to look at the history of their brain. I'm looking at what injury they've had before, whether that's accumulated small vessel disease, you can see evidence of previous embolic infarcts, and it's kind of like the cutting the tree in half and looking at the rings to see what the life of the tree has been like. It's a good uh, sequence for looking at the health and the life of the brain. Additional, very important sequences are our gradient echoes or swan imaging. And the reason we look at that is we can see evidence of micro hemorrhages or macro hemorrhages that have occurred in the past. And that may change your decision making from whether you're going to start somebody on anticoagulation or dual antiplatelet therapy. And it's, it's also going to inform your discussion with the patient. You're going to say, hey, you've had a stroke, but you've had plenty of bleeds in the past. Your bleeding risk is not the same as your neighbor's. And it helps me uh, enlighten my decision making. So uh, the next time you roll your eyes because an MRI is wanted by neurology for another stroke, we look beyond just the stroke. We're really trying to get an idea of how this patient's brain has been doing. An additional assessment that we do during our a stroke evaluation is a cardiac assessment, starting simply with an EKG, but requiring telemetry monitoring. The decision for how long the monitoring is done is really based on the whole clinical picture. If we're falling into this category of we've done their whole workup, including their cranial vessel imaging, their MRI, A1C, and lipid profile, and we really don't have a clear cause, We've lumped them into this area of stroke. If it looks embolic, then they're ESUS or embolic stroke of undetermined source versus cryptogenic where we have competing etiologies or we've done the whole work and we don't find anything. The role of extended monitoring with implantable loop recorders and holters is a whole discussion in and of itself. Uh, all I will say is that there is a role when we don't know what's going on to further assess for cardiac causes if there's a high suspicion. The other part of the cardiac workup is the echocardiogram. And when we're assessing whether we're going to do a TTE versus a TEE, it really comes into the age and risk factors of the patient. If I have a what's called stroke and young patient, which is a young individual, less than some studies quote less than 60, some consider less than 50, their possibilities for stroke are much more broad and it opens my work up. So once I'm in this stroke and young category, I'm gonna dig in for that TEE to look at the left atrial appendage and really get a good view of that heart in addition to or in lieu of the TTE. 
I would definitely favor longer monitoring. And although it's controversial, inpatient versus outpatient assessment for the hypercoagulable state. So when we're considering which hypercoagulable labs to perform, we try to favor the labs that can predispose you to a stroke in the arterial territories. Although most institutions, when they're sending these hypercoagulable panels, they send both the arterial and venous thrombophilic states. The caveat here is that they're quite expensive to do these studies, and that is why there's an ongoing study as to seeing which ones we need to do in the hospital and which ones we can do outpatient, but that answer still hasn't been achieved yet. We tend to send both at our institution if we have a high suspicion that this patient is at risk for a hypercoagulable state, especially in those stroke and young situations. Excellent. So now that we've talked about some of the diagnostic workup involved, um, it will be great to discuss a little bit more about secondary prevention strategies based on the stroke etiology. So the, the first one I, I think is the easiest to start with is small vessel disease. This is really, I would say, a disease of medical illness, essentially. You really want to hammer home the importance of routine medical care. And by that, I mean making sure your blood sugars are under control, your blood pressure is under control, specifically treating to a target of less than 130 over 80, which is our new guidelines, treating the cholesterol to target. If they've had a stroke, you should be shooting for a LDL goal of less than 70. And additionally, we use antiplatelet agents, typically like that chance and point paradigm that we mentioned before, the dual antiplatelet for 21 to 90 days, followed by single antiplatelet therapy uh, while they're undergoing additional care. I can't say how many times that the best stroke is the one you prevent, and the best way to treat those is with this risk factor modification. But in addition, physical activity is uh, in the guidelines as a formal recommendation, and also counseling your patients and giving them the mechanisms of Getting to a heart-healthy diet, like the DASH diet or Mediterranean diet, are all significant interventions. Although I mentioned this in small vessel disease, that doesn't stop you from recommending this to your other stroke patients. So I would say, that, you know, always go for the lifestyle modifications in addition to all of the other medical recommendations you make. There are some nuances to treatment. Once we've done a complete workup and our only etiology we've decided is a large vessel atheroembolic disease, we kind of decide whether this is something that would be more amiable to intervention. So an example being a carotid stenosis. If I think that a carotid stenosis is the cause of stroke, I basically have to decide if this patient fits into the criteria for revascularization in addition to whatever medical therapy I have them on. And we, you know, have that conversation with vascular surgery. I'm going to avoid giving specific recommendations on when to intervene for the purposes of, although I know we talked about it, I'm going to say in court, it's not going to stand up if you say I intervened on this carotid because Dennis said it in a podcast. So we really do consider that as a secondary prevention modality. When we're thinking of intracranial atherosclerotic disease, we tend to lean towards the SAMPRIS protocol. 
And that really does favor doing the dual antiplatelet therapy for slightly longer. Rather than 21 to 90 days, the typical standard is 90 days of dual antiplatelet if we think that it's intracranial atherosclerotic disease. The jury on whether intracranial stenting has a role is out. There's, you know, I think it's beyond this talk to talk about that, but know that there are other additional therapies that can be offered. We just need to work with our interventional colleagues to make that decision. The really weird kind of gray area that exists right now is when you have a stroke that you're convinced is embolic, you're looking at the MRI, it's scattered, but you haven't found a cardiac cause for it yet. You're still doing the cardiac workup. We have strong evidence that you don't just start these patients on anticoagulation. So there have been studies that have done this where we've taken strokes in these ESUS patients and done antiplatelets and anticoagulation. And really it's washed out that really other than the increased hazard ratio from bleeding, we're not helping them. Now, keep that in mind that at the time, we may not have been selecting patients correctly. So this data is going to evolve as the current trial, Arcadia, comes out because that's what that's looking at. So we might have more guidance on that later. And obviously, you all know this better than I do, but if someone has atrial fibrillation, it becomes a little bit easier in that we favor anticoagulation. We've been leaning towards the direct oral Mm -hmm. anticoagulants lately, specifically, you know, apixaban, uh, or, um, or Roxaban. Yep. Given the recent trials, there has been a slight favor towards Apixaban given the safety profile, but um, you know everything is patient-based, and if once daily dosing is the medication that will work for them, we've, we've gone with Rivaroxaban and, and occasionally Dabigatran for other situations as well. Other stroke etiologies to consider and work up and treat are really in that kind of, and it's a bad word, but zebra category, which includes your vasculitides, your vasculopathies. I also lump PFO in here, but it's really not like a a zebra because it's one of the most common things that you can come across. And the reason I lump PFO in with zebras is because although one in four people have a PFO, attributing the stroke risk to a PFO has been difficult. And although we have risk stratification scores, and I encourage all of you to look up the ROPE score, and more recently, the Pascal algorithm, which can help you kind of lump your patients into a risk category for stroke attributed to their PFO, we definitely recommend doing a thorough, comprehensive stroke workup prior to attributing a stroke to their PFO. Just note that a lot of the closure trials that recommended closing PFO really recommended closure on those high-risk PFOs. So that included those large shunts and those patients with atrial septal aneurysms. When we're considering our treatments, we have to consider that not all of our patients can tolerate the treatments that we provide. And if you have a patient who has a risk of stroke related to atrial fibrillation, but you're worried that they can't tolerate anticoagulation, One thing to consider and to discuss with them is left atrial appendage closure or left atrial appendage occlusion with a watchman, which has recently been recommended. So the elephant in the room is that I've talked this entire time about ischemic stroke. And although um, just over 80% of strokes are ischemic, we still have those hemorrhagic strokes. And When I refer to hemorrhagic stroke, I'm referring to an intracerebral intraparenchymal hemorrhage. And that's delineated from 
your epidural hemorrhages, your subdural hemorrhage, and your subarachnoids. I'm really referring to bleeding within the brain parenchyma itself. And so the way that that patient comes in and the way I approach them is completely different because, you know, an ischemic stroke is too much clotting, whereas a hemorrhagic stroke is the total opposite. So I'm not going to TPA that patient. The important things when you're evaluating a patient who you suspect or have identified hemorrhagic stroke is falling far, far back. And that is on your basics. And that's the first thing you're going to do is ABCs. Obviously, your brain does not like having blood in there. And since it's a closed container, a rapidly expanding hemorrhage can compromise somebody's level of consciousness. And so really identifying that quickly and stabilizing the patient early can be key. And sometimes, even if you're suspecting, you may need to stabilize them before you even do additional imaging. When we see a patient who has an acute intracerebral hemorrhage, the history is still key. So we're trying to get additional information from usually family members because these patients are not able to to speak to us at the time. And the things we're asking them for is what medications they're on because if they're on a blood thinner, I want to know so that I can reverse it. If they're taking warfarin, I'm going to reverse that differently than if a patient is on anti-10A inhibitor. If they're on Eliquisozrelto, I'm reaching for Endexinet Alpha, which we have at you know our institutions and is the recommended reversal agent by the AHA currently. And if you have a patient who less commonly is on Dabigatran, they have their own reversal for Dabigatran as well. So understanding what the patient is on can change treatment. Identifying other etiologies for coagulopathy, including maybe this patient just had a stroke and you put them on dual antiplatelet, and that's why they bled. So... In that situation, I've had this question asked, do we give that patient platelets? You know, we gave them antiplatelets, seems logical. We did the study, you know, it actually showed that giving them platelets doesn't help. This can be discussed with our neurocritical care colleagues and and neurosurgical colleagues who occasionally will consider using desmopressin in the situation of coagulopathy related to uh, antiplatelet therapy. That is case by case. The other person who you want to call yesterday is neurosurgery, because when you have a big gooba in your head, the person who's going to drill a hole or cut their head open and drain it out is going to be neurosurgery. So they should know early on if you're going to treat this patient. So their their assessment is parallel to your own. The standard that we use is if we have an intracerebral hemorrhage and it is not amiable to resection at the time or is stable and the patient is stable and not needing surgery, we will re-image them. And what I'll do is if the patient exam changes or six hours later, I will rescan them as a general rule, unless I have high risk features that make me think that that hemorrhage is going to get worse. And some of those high risk features are if I do a CTA and I find something called a um, spot sign, which is basically a sign that there's a blood vessel feeding into that hemorrhage that suggests that the hematoma is going to expand. And I may reconsider when I scan that patient again. There's no one-size-fit-all cookie-cutter answer. There is a role for vessel imaging. And the reason why getting a CTA or any sort of vessel imaging up front can help you is one of the causes for a intracerebral hemorrhage is an aneurysm rupture, or vascular malformation that is symptomatic. 
And identifying that upfront can help you decide whether you're going to need more advanced imaging, such as in angio upfront versus, you know, a more immediate neurosurgical intervention. It really is that I need to move quick and thoroughly. And the patient with an intracerebral hemorrhage also has conservative measures that anyone can do. So whenever I'm stabilizing that patient, after I've just figured out what's going on, I'm recommending head of bed greater than 30 degrees. If their airway is secure or we're considering them for surgery, you may decide on hyperventilating them. If it's a bridge to surgery, you will consider osmotic therapy, such as hypertonic saline, whether that's your 3% or your 23% bullets that we call them, and uh, mannitol. And really, there's, again, I'm going to say this multiple times, but there's no cookie cutter answer. It's knowing what can go wrong in your patient and keeping a really close eye on them. So this is the patient who you're going to watch like a hawk. And as they change, you're going to reassess your plan. Once the patient's outside of that acute range and whether they got intervened on, whether they're, uh, they didn't need intervention, then we kind of take a step back and say, okay, why did they bleed? And if there wasn't an obvious cause up front, like a coagulopathy, a trauma, an obvious malformation in the brain, then we kind of jump forward and we do our additional workup, including MRI. And based on the location of the bleed, it may guide us in one way or the other. If it's in a typical location for a hypertensive hemorrhage, we might say, okay, that's most likely hypertensive. If it's more cortical-based, and the patient has signs that they uh, have multiple microhemorrhages, we may consider cerebral amyloid angiopathy. Other things that should, you should never forget and can't miss are that METs can bleed and that malignancy is a consideration and you should screen those patients and talk to them about risk factors for malignancy and malignancy screening because when acute blood is in the brain, it can obscure underlying malformations such as an AVM or it can obscure a tumor. And if we do the initial hemorrhagic workup and we don't find anything, our patient does great, they get to rehab, we oftentimes re-image them on the outpatient basis to make sure as that blood kind of drains away and is reabsorbed, nothing was hiding underneath. That really is the key to kind of a hemorrhagic stroke patient. It's recognizing, calling the right people, stabilizing them, and once you get them over the hump, figuring out why it happened. And this one really is the multidisciplinary, all hands on deck, everybody working as a team kind of situation. This was a great discussion on hemorrhagic stroke, but I do know that the hemodynamic requirements may be different for hemorrhagic versus ischemic stroke. Could you just elaborate on that a little bit more? It's a very good point. Up until recently, we've led towards dropping blood pressures lower. Prior to the most recent iteration of the ICH guidelines, we tended to favor dropping blood pressures less than 140 systolic. With the new iteration of the guidelines, uh, their blood pressure parameters are a lot tighter. It's uh, The general recommendations are 130 to 150. The principle being behind this is very simple. If you have a hose that's you know spewing blood, decrease the pressure in the hose. But we've recognized as neurologists that although the brain is the best organ in the entire body and that's unequivocal, we don't want to hurt the friend organs 
like the kidneys and the rest of the body by dumping the blood pressure and causing more long-term injury. And so although there are guidelines for blood pressure recommendations, guidelines are guidelines, and we look at each patient individually. We'll monitor their urine output and their hemodynamic functions and make sure that our blood pressure goals that we're recommending aren't causing harm to our patient. And if you can think of somebody who's 30 and has been healthy most of their lives, their hemodynamic parameters would be different than somebody who's 90, has chronic kidney injury and significant peripheral vascular and atherosclerotic disease. So we do take a lot into account when making that blood pressure decision. But in general, you're never wrong in reducing the blood pressure. Wow, neurology is truly fascinating. This was a very comprehensive overview, and I'm sure our residents will be more confident recognizing stroke when they see it, initiating a stroke alert, and managing the patient until neurology team gets there. That's all we have for you today. We hope you learned something new today, and we'll see you